Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. From wherever you are around the globe, it is Friday the 10th of April. This is episode three of The Way It Is, official Bobby Galinsky podcast. And I am Bobby Galinsky, and I am official, and I'm really happy that we've made it to number three. We are just dodging bullets every week, and it's great to be back and see you all. And remember, I can see you all. Even if you put a little Band-Aid or anything over your camera on your laptop or phone or whatever, I see exactly what you did there. So um, we had a beautiful full moon in Libra on Wednesday, and the moon's going into Sagittarius tonight, according to Mystic Medusa. So it's a very psychic time. we got to give you that astrology report so you know exactly which way this podcast is going to go. We feel very psychic, and we feel very dark and cryptic and very skull and skeleton-like. And on that note, I am dressed in the king of skulls today, Alexander McQueen. Many of you are saying, well, why don't you show some photos of this? There will be photos coming. There actually even could be YouTube coming, but I, I highly doubt it. I highly doubt it. But um, we've got the beautiful black Alexander McQueen skull designer t-shirt from New Bond Street in London. Uh, the McQueen black zippered slacks, and the oversized white McQueen sneakers. And really oversized because I wear a size 45 or 46 anyway, which is a US 13, and they look like boats. But I don't care. I think I look really good. And when you look good and feel good, you do good. And there's a lot of you that are working from home for the very first time that uh, the Wuhan virus has sent home your employer said, work from home. And if you've never worked from home, I'll bet about 90% of you are in daggy pajamas or scary underwear, and your hair looks like, you know, God knows what. And you're sitting at your computer or your laptop or whatever, and you've got your Diet Coke in front of you and your cigarettes and, you know, a half-eaten coffee scroll or some, you know, yogurt that's out of date by five days and you're just kind of nibbling that. And just even conjuring up that site makes me ill because I've been working from home since like 1953. As a writer, producer, lecturer, everything I do creating has come pretty much from home. Other than when I was at Disney, which I did treat like my own living room. But anyway, working from home I learned an old adage many, many years ago. If you dress up to feel great, you will be professional. And I would have to say that, I, in fact, I'd even wager 90% of super successful people that work from home dress up and go to work at their computer, just like they're going to work sometimes, because you got to feel good. Yeah, sometimes I really dressed down. Last week, I was in my Qantas first class pajamas, but I had the Prada sneakers on, so I still felt good. I felt like I was on a vacation, even though... A vacation is like a dream within a dream right now. But um, enough on that. You can dress the way you like. I really don't care what you dress like when you listen to my show, just as long as you fucking listen, okay? I do appreciate it. Now, and just by the way, speaking of Alexander McQueen and Skulls, a shout out to the original Screaming Skull, Mr. Hal Totten in Boulder, Colorado, a longtime friend. How are you going out there, Hal? And cultural and social references are very important. A lot of people go, in, Hal, Hal how, would, how would you know Hal? Well, back in 1972 or 73, we were in the back of our friend's 
um, Dodge Dart. G. Brown um, had a um, old blue Dodge Dart that was our concert vehicle. And we were going to a concert in Denver. I can't remember. I think it was Blue Oyster Cult, Mott the Hoople, and Alice Cooper. I'm not sure, but it was a major concert. And we had some astonishing, astonishing pot. And it was in a little film can. For those of you that remember film before digital. And we're going down Highway 36 from Boulder to Denver, where the concert was. It's about a half an hour drive. And we're absolutely fried out, out of our brains. And uh, going the other way, coming the other way on the highway from Denver to Boulder. And not only on the other side, but there was a big divider between us. So we're in two lanes going, you know, 100 miles an hour towards Denver. There's two lanes going the other way on the other side of a divider and a median going the other way. Well, a highway patrol car came the other way. Didn't have lights on, didn't have anything, just a highway patrol car. And suddenly, even in our, you know, miasmic stupor, we, we felt this wind. And the wind was because Hal had rolled the window down in his side of the back seat. And we all saw the corner of our eyes, just kind of saw this flash, this flash that looked like a film can being thrown out the window. And of course, it was a film can being thrown out the window with all our pot. And moments later, when we realized it, we, we asked Hal why he did it. And he said he just couldn't take any chances. Just to let you know that this wasn't a one-off and it was recidivist behavior too. Um, about a year or two later, in the same Dodge Dart, uh, Chief Brown driving, we were zooming. Maybe I was driving, I'm not sure, but, um, because we had taken some amazing purple microdot acid which was absolutely indescribable at the time. And we're cruising around Boulder, and um, I don't think we ran over anybody or, you know, hurt anybody at the time, but it was just kind of the thing he did. And um, Hal was with us, and Hal was not handling it well, and he asked us to pull the car over, and he got out of the car, and he he just vanished. He, he, he just vanished. Anyway, it was, I don't know if it was, you know, days later or whatever, he, he turned back up and said, Hal, what happened? Um, what, you know, what, what went on? What was, what happened? He said, well, I was just really just, just too high and I had to get out of the car and had to go um, for a walk. I was just, I was just a bit freaked out. We said, well, Hal, you know, if you're walking around aimlessly, you know, what, what happened? He said, well, all I was worried about is if the police came and stopped me, as if the police were going to randomly stop someone that's just walking home in the dark in Boulder on any on any given Sunday, just no more than any highway patrol car would do a U-turn over a median and chase down a blue Dodge Dart heading towards Denver that might have thrown a film can out at 100 miles an hour while they was going the other direction, 100 miles an hour on any given Sunday. But nevertheless... Um, Hal said, don't worry, guys. Um, if the police had stopped me, I just would have said, three guys, um, friends took me. They drugged me. I don't really remember who they were. And I'm just trying to get home. Well, Hal, I'm glad you got home. Just to make sure that while we're sequestered at home, or some of us are sequestered at home, or some of us might not be sequestered at home, we do know where we are today is Good Friday in Australia. Um, very good Friday, sweet baby Jesus, and it's Passover, which the Jews out there know what Passover is. For those of you who aren't the Jews, it's um, way, way back a zillion years ago when the Jews fled Egypt from the Egyptians, the bad Pharaoh, badass Pharaoh, and we got to the desert, and, you know, we didn't have a ride share or anything like that, so we had to cook some shit up in the middle of the night in the desert, and we didn't have 
you know, flour to uh, raise the bread. So the bread came out flat, and it's unleavened bread, and that's called matzah, and that's the stuff you see in the kosher section of the, the grocery store that nobody buys because the box usually tastes better than what's inside. But it's symbolic, and um, uh, it takes the place of drinking the blood of Christian children, which we did for a few thousand years before we went back to the matzah. No, 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 no. That's where all that anti-Semitic, you know, blood ritual stuff started. And if you are actually still buying into that, whew, wow, then um, it's too late for you because Bernie Sanders dropped out of the election. But moving also, it's Easter this weekend. And um, don't know if Jesus is coming back, but George Pell has come back. And it's a good Friday for him. Um, whether that's good or bad, we'll leave that up to you. The archbishop who had about 3,000 charges of interfering with kids dropped against him. So um, that kind of wraps up the religious news up to now the secular news on this day in history in 1953. The first color 3D movie premiered in New York City, House of Wax 3D, which was absolutely smoke and shit scary. In 1970, on this day, the Beatles broke up. Paul McCartney announced that, and I remember coming home from school, high school, and hearing on the radio, and it absolutely crushed me. House of Wax the first time, and I think it was with my brother, who wasn't very good at horror movies, he used to bolt out of them, him and his friends, his older friends. He's seven years older. He'd always, his friends, you know, Mike Potash and, uh, and Steve Kalen and uh, all the other kids that were his age, all of those guys would uh, go to the cinemas and they'd have to take me because, you know, I was like seven, and they were 14, and they would always bolt out of films. I remember seeing First Man in Outer Space at the Hollywood Theater down in Sioux City downtown, and they left that too. I love horror movies. And also on this day in 1972, something a, a bit ironic considering what's happening outside today, America, the USSR, and 70 other nations, not that there's really even 70 other nations that really even count, they all agreed to ban biological weapons. Well, isn't that ironic today? And speaking of biological weapons, I hope everyone is self-isolating well and not getting too freaked out. I'm sure one of those 70 countries that uh, co-signed the no biological weapons thing was uh, probably Sudan or something, which also was having a little bit of a biblical time uh, this year with all the locusts and everything like that, which really doesn't bother me because if you're going to have a plague of locusts, have it in Northern Africa. Have it in the Sudan, where, where there hasn't been food in, you know, 5,000 years anyway. Um, now, there is an Uber Eats opportunity for you. Open up the franchise in Sudan. I noticed that the uh, Boston Globe had a big editorial about that, that they wanted to ban alcohol sales in Massachusetts because domestic violence was up 77% since self-isolation started. And they correlate that to the sale of alcohol. Well, I think alcohol sales should be mandatory during times like this because I think domestic violence would go up 500% without alcohol. That's just kind of my theory on it. But then again, that's why I'm not the Surgeon General. And it's just a bit ironic that uh, this came out of Massachusetts, the state that gave us Elizabeth Warren as a presidential candidate. Could you imagine waking up in the House without alcohol with Elizabeth Warren? Um, Pocahontas, that would be stressful, self-isolating. But it's not all doom and gloom. There are unicorns and fairy tales and, um, you know, sky bars and jet streams and 
uh, rainbows and uh, happiness. There's not all doom and gloom. In fact, there was an amazing rainbow off Brighton Pier this morning, which um, was absolutely astonishing at seven this morning when we were trying to have a beautiful walk without all the people from the other suburbs coming in and invading our beaches. I'm a bit elitist about that, but you probably know that by now. I'm going to be talking about uh, journeys today. We're going to be talking about journeys from our first guest on this um, series, Dr. Kim Cole, who will be on later. Uh, I'll be talking about uh, a fr friend of mine, Keith Badger, and his wife, Deb. Uh, Keith wrote an amazing book called Joining Loose Ends. And he was kind of a high-flying corporate guy who decided to walk across England. Now, England's not that big, but I'm not talking walk across England left to right, east to west, or west to east. I'm talking about walking across England north to south or south to north the long way. And I do mean walking with a backpack and his wife. And it's amazing that they're still married and they're both alive right now because it's an amazing, amazing book and I highly recommend you, you um, read it in... When you read it, you'll see how Keith transmogrified from this high-flight corporate jet-setter to someone who's involved with the planet and Extinction Rebellion and good things and stuff like that, where basically I throw everything into the same bin, whether it's recycling or Keith isn't my lefty friend. Keith is my greeny friend. We spoke about my lefty friend, Jim Morgenstern, last week, who is t still tweeting away, still can't recover, uh, but Keith is my greeny friend. you got to have money, just like some people have dogs, some people have cats. Some people have pangolins. Uh, I have a lefty friend and I have a greedy friend, but only one of each, only one of each. And I bring up Keith because Keith loved the podcast and wanted me to talk about how I met my lovely wife. And it all goes back to May of 2008 when I just returned from the Cannes Film Festival um, with my, and which is amazing. Cannes Film Festival is Disneyland for adults. Absolutely the best. If you're a filmmaker, you've got to go to Cannes. It's 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 just a holy grail, and I would go every year if that was uh, realistic. But I'm pretty much retired right now, and just sitting here in my Alexander McQueen clothes, talking to you and watching everything you do, as you know. But more importantly, I'd come back from Cannes, and uh, it was May 2008. We had just debuted our film *Prey*, which uh, was the most hated film in Australia that year. Um, and released in the U.S. as Dreamtime's Over to um, mixed results. Some people loved it, um, just not enough. But then I came back to Australia. The apartment that I was renting at the time, I had planned to buy, but the people that owned it decided that they didn't want to sell it to me. They were going to sell it to um, his wife's brother or something like that. It was the middle of the GFC. It was, it was a horrible time. It was a catastrophic time for trying to raise money for films and get it and get films made. And he basically said, no, we're not going to sell it to you. We're not going to make any more arrangements. And even though you've been running it for years, you, you've got to go find something and we're going to turf you out in 45 days because um, her brother was coming over from Singapore or some, someplace, Singapore. So I had 45 days to completely find a new place, move all my stuff, completely change my life around. And they'd given me 45 days, and of course I waited 43 days, and I was running out of time. I had two days to find a place, and they, I couldn't find anything or, or anybody, so I had to make a decision, um, but quick. That were going to be available short-term or medium-term. And just out of the blue, I called a friend of mine who used to be the Channel 10 newsreader, 
in Melbourne, uh, Jennifer Hansen, who's uh, now a, a well-known radio broadcaster, and said, Jen, do you know anybody who has an apartment available that they, they would lease and wouldn't mind having cats in it because I had two amazing Siamese cats, Oscar and Felix, the two greatest cats in the history of God who have since passed but do advise me daily on this podcast. And she said, oh, I've got a friend of mine in Elwood named Pinky that is just about to put an apartment up and it's right across from the beach. I didn't even know where Elwood was, but I kind of had a good idea. I never went south of St. Kilda, if you know Melbourne. And was living in St. Kilda at the time. And so she gave me her number and I gave her a call. And she said, uh, it was about five in the afternoon. And she said, I'm going to put it up on the market tonight, actually. Would you like to take a look at it before I put it on the market? I go, sure. So I zoomed down the beach and I pull up to the building. And I see a beautiful building right across from the beach. I go, oh, fantastic, because I love the water. Like I said before, if you grew up in Sioux City, Iowa, where there is no large body of water, just rivers, and Lake Okaboji and Arnold's Park and Spirit Lake. Well, like I said, there's no large bodies of water. Being near the beach is amazing. And no, there's the argument people from Sydney will go, well, it's not a real beach, it's a harbor. It's not like the real beach like Bondi or Bronte in Sydney. I used to live in Sydney. Granted, yes, Sydney has the best, most beautiful beaches and harbors. But it also has people from Sydney. So anyway, moving right along. I'm in Elwood. I pull up to the building. It looks great. I go inside. I uh, meet Pinky. She shows me the apartment. It's absolutely fantastic. But what's more important and how we are roundabout circuitously getting to the point of this story and Keith Badger's inquiry about this show is as I looked out the window from the third floor down to the street that we're going to be and lo and behold, lo and behold, there was a smoking hot power blonde walking across the street, striding across the street, getting into a shiny new black BMW. And it was absolutely an amazing vision. Love at first sight, even though I really couldn't see all of her. But um, I could serendipitously, psychically, and the theme of this show is psychic, as the moon has gone into Sagittarius, as Mystic Medusa reminded us, and I reminded you early in the podcast, I just had to ask her, I go, who's that girl? And uh, because she lives downstairs, and I go, is she single? She goes, I'm not love at first sight, even though I really couldn't see. And so I said, I'll take it. She said, the apartment? Yeah, well, the apartment, and um, we'll see. And that was um, a bit of history, because um, I ran into her a few times as I was moving in, and being a shy, introverted type of guy, as you can already tell, I... Um, Really didn't make any moves or anything like that, but um, she was absolutely stunning, and and she seemed very smart, and she um, worked for a big multinational, so she wasn't in the entertainment industry, and so I felt, of course, I could rescue her. To make a long story short, a couple weeks later, I was having a barbecue upstairs by myself with the cats, and there was no alcohol involved in this. This is not an Elizabeth Warren story. There was no alcohol involved. I was actually on a 45 days of no alcohol um, program because my friend Suhey Blada was having his Syrian Easter, it's like the Greek Easter type thing, and he doesn't have any alcohol or meat. Well, I wasn't going to give up the meat, but I was going to give up the alcohol. So I hadn't had any alcohol, completely sober. I'm grilling out on the, the deck. And on top of the barbecue was this large two-liter bottle of Mount Franklin water that the gardener had left because the gardener had set up the uh, pots and plants and um, made it look all pretty and, and stuff like that. 
And so I'm barbecuing away. And unbeknownst to me, the two-liter bottle of Mount Franklin water was not a two-liter bottle of Mount Franklin water, but was methylated spirits that the moronic dimwit had left in a Mount Franklin bottle and put on top of the barbecue. And lo and behold, lo and behold, there was an explosion as it blew up and flames went everywhere as the methylated spirits covered the whole patio and flames going everywhere. And the cats were running wild and one of the the cats, Felix's tail caught on fire, meant to put that out. And the flames hit my legs and I was wearing a um, Adidas tracksuit and it started melting and the methylated spirits went into my boot and my leg was on fire. And I got to tell you, it was absolutely pa pandemonium. And I didn't have a fire extinguisher and I didn't have a flame blanket, which of course we do now in our house. But I went and threw a, a blanket from the um, spare bedroom on everything, but it was an acrylic bank blanket. It started on fire and started melting. And I started trying to throw water on everything. And of course it was methylated. Anyway, finally, I got about 90 blankets on, managed to put everything out and then attended to my leg, which I went into the bathtub and poured ice on, which was a catastrophically bad thing to do when your leg is about burnt to the bone is put ice on it. Anyway, let's suffice to say it fucking hurt. And I was in shock. But more importantly, the only person that came to rescue me, so to speak, came up was my neighbor downstairs, who I had met, the lovely blonde who was crossing the street just weeks before, who was checking to see if I was okay, because fire trucks were outside, the fire truck department had come, the ambulance people had come, given me a morphine shot, which I got to tell you, almost made the fire worthwhile, but not quite. And um, she checked on me, which I found out later was not really to see if I was okay, but to see if I was single which she successfully ascertained. No one else in the whole building, 13 units, came up to check on me, which I find absolutely, you know, unbelievable since everyone was home that evening. But um, that is how serendipity works. That is how God remains anonymous for those of you that are uh, a bit religious or spiritual, which I do admit to being. And a couple weeks later, when my leg was starting to heal after quite a bit of plastic surgery, and heaps of endone, which was a new discovery that I absolutely love. Uh, she invited me down to her apartment downstairs where I limped down and she got in. I got in and she locked all the doors. The place was all candlelit and really romantic looking and uh, uh, dark and just beautiful and romantic. And she went to the fridge and she asked me if I wanted a drink. And um, of course, and she pulled out a beautiful bottle of amazing top shelf uh, New Zealand Sauve Blanc. In fact, mysteriously, she's never spent that kind of money on, on wine since that, uh, which just came to me, but uh, it worked, and the rest is history, as they say. And we were married, and absolutely, I would set myself on fire a hundred times to meet this girl again. That's, that's how good it is. And for those of you that are really superstitious, um, way back when I was in Boulder in 1977, um, my oldest, oldest friend there, uh, William Porter, Will Porter, who I met at a poker game on the hill with uh, Ellen Myers and uh, Eric Varney and Mark Frankel and Bob Ween, names from the past we used to play up on. 
and also a guy named Joe Caps. And and Will was the person that uh, took every cent I had my first semester um, at University of Colorado in the poker game, wiped me out, and I had to call my dad for more money because I'd spent my tuition money at the poker game and lost it all. And let me tell you, that was a tough call. Anybody that knows my dad, knew my dad, knows that was a tough call. Anyway, Will, way back then, had introduced me to a friend of his who was a psychic and also a psychologist. Her name was Barbara Shear. And it was um, quite amazing, for those of you that love amazing stories, because she uh, gave me a reading, and this is back in the mid-70s, when she said, I would move to Australia one day. I would move to one city and then another city and then meet the love of my life and my career would explode. And of course, in 1994, I moved to Sydney. In 2000, I moved to Melbourne. And you know the rest of the story. I didn't even know where Australia was in the mid-70s. Um, so I thought it was all rubbish. And the finale of that story is I'd completely forgotten about um late Barbara Shear passed away, and she had done the reading for me on one of those little micro-cassette tapes, you know, from the 70s, and, uh, like a dictaphone thing. Anyway, when uh, I'd moved to uh, uh, Melbourne and, you know, got together with my wife and everything, I was digging through old things when we moved um, in together, and I found you know, old video cassettes and micro-cassettes, stuff like that, and I found that micro-cassette, and um, I didn't even have a micro-cassette player. I had to go um, get one on eBay, which cost like $10 to put it in and play and play some of these things and see what I had and find that original reading, which told me about that. And uh, a hugely, hugely heart-swelling, emotional moment um, that it all came true. And um, if you're sitting out there and you're single and looking for the love of your life, as I segue into the heartfelt part of the program, there's, there's hope for you. But probably not much. If you're sitting here listening to my podcast, you're uh, probably pretty much in a bad way right now. So, sorry. But you can live off this story for a while. Try and top that one, Charlie Murphy, Unity. So that's the end of our sucky, heartfelt, emotional part of the uh, podcast. And um, you've seen enough of me there. And I could go back to high school and talk about all my frustrations and, you know, the uh, cheerleaders that I had crushes on and things like that. But that's just not going to happen. So let's talk about recent news. Just in the past couple of days, in the past couple of days, a lot here in Australia, Archbishop Pell, who was the highest ranking Catholic person outside of the, the Pope, pretty much, and the highest ranking Australian in the Catholic Church, who was sentenced to lots of years in prison um, for abusing altar boys and being just a, a general pedophile kind of guy, uh, got off in, in this whole pandemic thing with everything closed and most of the courts closed and everything like that. They somehow found a way to sneak him into the court system this week. And uh, his decision was reversed and he was set free, which really, I feel bad for all the people that were absolutely abused in court and um, tormented in the press that came forward to tell their stories, and now it's all for naught. It's um, it's a horrible situation, and I'm a relatively religious person. I don't care whether you're Catholic or um, Mormon or Jewish or, um, you know, you know, even Muslim. If you're a moderate Muslim, a moderate Muslim is is one that's unarmed. By the way, let's clarify that. But uh, it's just a sad thing. It's just a sad thing. It's, it gives it gives religion um, a bad name. Another thing. Another thing, which you know bothers me even more, is uh, a mother and her 18-year-old daughter were 
stopped while she was teaching her how to drive on the roads here in Melbourne a couple of days ago, which are completely empty now because, you know, all the quarantine and everything like that. So they're in the car and like there's no chance they're going to interface with anybody else. That is ultimate social distancing. And she was teaching her how to drive and the police pulled her over and gave her a $1,680 ticket for being out on an unnecessary drive. Now, a lot of people will disagree with me, and I think, but I think that's an absolute bull, bullshit thing. And hopefully they will withdraw the ticket, but they should have just given her a warning and publicized the hell out of it. Give her a huge warning, then people go, oh, I won't do that. But that's the kind of you know thing where I t- talked about last week, that your rights will start to erode, and then your rights will really erode and um, then you'll say, geez, what happened there? And I'm not discounting the pandemic at all. You got to look at it in context. I just think um, absolute silliness. And then segueing into personal rights, moving right next door here, um, we've got a, a new neighbor who just bought the uh, property next door, uh, like a hundred year old house, big block. And uh, he knocked it down as was expected because the house was just rickety and, and, and a shambles. But but there was a 160-year-old peppercorn tree next door. The most beautiful old tree. You could see it from blocks, see it from miles. And it, it shaded um, our apartment, shaded everybody's apartment in the area. Absolutely stunning. Now, this was in the middle of his block. And we heard that uh, he was going to put a pool in a tennis court there, too. We thought, well, there's no room. And he cordoned off the tree, and we really tried to save that tree and, you know, kind of asked counselors and politicians in the area to write letters, which they did. But what I do recognize is it was his block. It is his block. He paid the money for it, played zillions for it, and it is his tree. So it is his right to cut it down. And after a year, yesterday, we heard the saws and the tree, the beautiful tree, came down. And I'm absolutely gutted, absolutely gutted, because it was amazing. But I do recognize that it was his block and his tree and his right. And and that's something that I think we all have to balance. We can get really angry about things. We have to say, who really has ownership of this, whether it's, you know, the pandemic or politics or neighbor rights or whatever like that. You got to think, this makes me happy. This makes me angry. But really, who has the overwhelming right here. So I got to respect that. I got to respect that. And he, he went about the right way with a permit and everything like that. So uh, if he is putting in the pool in the tennis court, certainly hope we get an invitation. So um, we'll follow up on that in, in, in future shows. But before we go into the next part of the program, I do want to review, and, and, and what you'll see is kind of a recap there, what's really important to me. Same thing I said in the very first episode. I don't care what you like. You could, I'm happy that you like it, as long as you don't care what I like. We can agree or we can disagree. But I'm not going to shout you down or cancel you or censor you for what you like. I'll disagree. I'll give my opinion. But we, we walk on. We have a discussion. And if you don't like anything that I have to say, well, that, that's, that, that's fine too. We don't try and erase Things. If there's a law that you can't be on the roads, well, there's a law you can't be on the roads, and I don't like the thing with the driver, but that's the law. And I might not like a lot of the things that are going on with rules with the pandemic, and I may have thoughts otherwise, but 
that's the way it's happening right now. But I think it's very important that we express our opinions. Um, I've been told that I'm too preachy. And that's probably definitely true. Definitely true. I can be in a rant. I belong to a men's club in um, the city, the Melbourne Savage Club. There's um, one in London, too. It's um, well over 100 years old. And it's guys that sit around and discuss things. And we may have completely different ideas on things and almost get into shouting matches. But then we all come together because we're friends. And, and that's the type of social discourse that I love when you can disagree, but still enjoy the person, um, love the humanity of the person. So further on that note of not minding what you like and you not minding what I like, um, for the record, and I've said it before, I, um, I like what Sweden has done during the pandemic by only limiting certain things and not locking everyone up and not taking everyone's freedoms away, which were eroding so bad. Now, they are a little bit above the per capita deaths and infections and all that. But it's early days. We'll see how that pans out. I think they've handled it more intelligently than in the U.S. and the U.K. and Australia. But that's just my opinion. I could be completely wrong. I think the governments have done a great job with the money, the grants and the loans and everything like that for personal people and businesses and things like that. But I do get... um, I wouldn't say upset, but befuddled when people are, you know, against saying, saying that, oh, one life, you know, if one more life goes, what, who cares about the stock market or anything like that? You just have to be aware that without businesses, without commerce, I'll say it again and again, that you, you don't have a country, you, you don't have um, things happening. And I just don't like the way... I just don't like the way things are so black and white instead of gray. And I'll uh, reference uh, a great line from uh, Dan Bongino. You don't set your thermostat in your house on or off for the heat in the winter. It's not like, oh, I can't afford the heat. I'll be cold. You set the thermostat according to what you can afford. It's a trade-off. And I think we have to make sure that there's trade-offs between the value and the sanctity of human life and the value in the sanctity of people who are losing generations of um, business and may never be able to start another business again and things like that. So just kind of putting putting that out there. Again, I love your opinion or I hate your opinion, but it doesn't change how I feel about you. With the exception, by the way, I got to have one exception. There's always an exception. Uh, as you know, Bernie Sanders dropped out of the presidential race this week and the Bernie bros who... Um, I don't know if they're even bipeds. I'm told they are. Um, but the Bernie bros who would rather have had a communist AOC squad, you know, third world Venezuelan, no stock market, everyone takes your money and gives it to those who won't work kind of situation. Well, that's that's what we've been experiencing the past several weeks. Bernie would have been a pandemic for at least four years. And even though a lot of people say, oh, well, he would have been the easy guy to beat for for the Republicans, I don't like even having his name on the ticket where there would have even been a chance of him being in the White House because it was only four years ago people said there's no chance for Donald Trump, and here we are, and I don't want to be the person that said, oh, there's no chance for Bernie and even have himself on the ticket. So looks like it's going to be Grandpa Joe, Grandpa Joe Biden, and uh, he, um, he'll get the Alzheimer's vote 
for sure, because um, that's his constituency. Enough of that. Enough of that. Notice how we just segued from heartfelt and loving and beautiful stories to to um, politics. But we can go right back. We can go right back. And during all of this, by the way, people say, well, where were your kids? Well, my, my late son, Chris, was living in, in the, the U.S. and Iowa with uh, his, his children. He, uh, as many people know, passed away this, this last year, which um, was um, inexplicable. And um, my youngest son, Steve, had been living in Australia. He came over and did his last uh, year or two of high school when I was still living in Sydney um, at Vaucluse High School, which is where Peter Weir, the director, and Phil Noyce went to high school. Um, very famous. Um, Steve was working after school, and then when I moved to Melbourne, he, he came down to Melbourne. He lived in St. Kilda in possibly the ugliest building ever built by a Caucasian Jew. Um, in St. Kilda. I, I can't even describe how ugly this building was. If you see buildings in Syria that have been bombed out or in the West Bank and in Palestine, it's, it's, it's always good to see things in Palestine bombed out. But if you see those buildings there, those were improvements on what Steve was living in. It was nice inside, but outside, unbelievable. And then he um, met his lovely partner while skydiving, I think actually sky flying in one of those chambers when he went back to the U.S., and she moved over to Australia and lived with him for a while. And uh, then they went back to the U.S. Where people say, where was Steve? Why didn't your son help you? Well, he was probably playing online poker in the darkness of the ugliest building ever built by a Caucasian Jew in the history in St. Kilda. So that kind of brings us up to date. Also, a couple of shout outs. Uh, Ludo Studio in Brisbane here produces the kids entertainment animated series called Bluey, and they just won an International Kids Emmy. So a great shout out to them. Um, Australia is known for some of the best, if not the best, children's television in the world. Um, and we also make the best reality TV too, like our MasterChef absolutely smashes. You know, the UK MasterChef, which looks like it was filmed in a crack house, and uh, our reality shows are stunning. Uh, unfortunately, that's it. Kids television and reality shows. And speaking of reality shows, our Amazing Race is way, way better than the U.S.'s Amazing Race. And especially our Survivor is astonishingly better than the U.S. Survivor. Uh, the people are more interesting. The chicks are more interesting and attractive. The guys have great stories and stuff like that. It's like in the U.S. they picked the most boring people as they possibly could you know, just to, you know, appeal to every social justice warrior and across every skew. But here, absolutely amazing. And the, you know, and the host here was always uh, known as the other LaPaglia. Um, but he actually is the real LaPaglia. He is fantastic. So I think we can take the original LaPaglia and uh, put him on the shelf for a while and keep this guy. Um, and absolutely astonishing. However, that's where it ends. Drama... Uh, comedy, everything else here. If you think self-isolation is bad, try and imagine self-isolation with most Australian television. That is why we need alcohol and Beyond Blue, the suicide hotline. I'm gonna, not going to mention a lot of those shows by name, especially because I have a lot of friends that work in the industry and work on those shows, um, un unbeknownst to knowing what they're actually working on, um, because they wouldn't know what they're working on, because usually... Um, most TV shows follow a script, which is non-existent in most Australian television. But uh, 
We make some great films down here. We got great technical crew, great reality shows, great kids show. Other than that, thank baby Jesus for the U.S. and the U.K. And thank Christ and Moses and, you know, Buddha and Mohammed and, you know, Sri Chimnoy and anybody that we've got cable down here. When I came here in 1994, turned on the TV, um, there was, you know, Channel 2, Channel 7, Channel 9, Channel 10, SBS. That was it. When my son Steve first came to visit, he goes, what's wrong with your TV? I said, it's not the TV, mate. Mate, it's the country. Um, however, news, news is another story here. We've got uh, the Channel 9 News, which has uh, a personality named Carl Stefanovic, who uh, is a big party animal, and uh, he's a good anchor to watch in the morning, and a new chick alongside him, Allison, who is is very good match. Then you go to Channel 7, and you've got the really straight business-like Kashi, this guy that looks like he could be your uncle or whatever, but he wears really, really nice suits, so he's watchable. But then he's got somebody on there named Natalie that um, she actually looks mean. She could be a lovely person, but you got to go by what you see, and she looks mean. So I always get scared when I watch her on TV, and I immediately flip the channel. Then you got Channel 10, which has the project, as people know it on here, which is the left-wing kids millennial type show, which occasionally has a few funny things but um, as a terrorist on, as one of the anchors from time to time. So that's kind of the TV situation here. So we like to watch the Sky News and Fox News and BBC and things like that. Keeps us alive and keeps us varied and informed. And I'll admit I do watch the NBC Today show uh, early in the morning here, which is um, a delayed broadcast from, from the U.S., which is always entertaining. Keeps in touch with the U.S., even though it is NBC, which is related to MSNBC, which is related to Chris Hayes. Um, who is living proof you need, don't need to have facts uh, to broadcast and you make up anything that you want. But that's okay. That's okay. We're going to move into the guest spot on the show now. I'm very, very excited to have our very first guest on the podcast. And I've known her for, I think, the better part of about um, five or six years now. She came to one of my seminars that uh, I used to give quite regularly on producing yourself and creating a, a blockbuster life in the entertainment industry out at Howard Fine Acting School. Uh, I've also done them at the uh, Melbourne Actors Lab with Peter Kalos and, um, in Sydney and, and around the world, as mentioned. But uh, she came to a seminar, and I always tell people to go home, find a story that is intrinsically you, something that absolutely defines you, and you turn it into your film, much like you know Matt Damon and Ben Affleck did with... Um, Goodwill Hunting, something that absolutely defines you that you can be the centerpiece of, whether you're the writer, the director, the actor, producer, whatever, or, or multi. And, and many of the people that have attended these seminars, some of them followed up and, and came back to me and asked for either some personal coaching. Um, a few dozen of them I took on as mentor clients where I would work with them directly and help them shepherd their project to fruition, whether it was a film or a documentary or whatever, you would have seen some of these, you would have heard about a lot of them. Um, very, very happy to help other people achieve their dreams and get through the system by making themselves the centerpiece rather than the person on the outside trying to look in. And one of my first and one that I'm particularly fond of her idea and her tenacity and skills is Dr. Kim Ko. This was pre-recorded and here we go. And now I'd like to welcome our very first guest to The Way It Is podcast, very first guest ever, so years and years from now when people look at the archives 
and they look at all the amazing, astonishing, super talented people that have been on this podcast, they will go to the very first one, who is my guest, who is author, actress, physician, friend, Dr. Kim Ko. Dr. Kim, welcome. Hi, Bobby. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> it's my pleasure. I tried 300 other people and they wouldn't do it. So um, <laughs> you were number 301. No, just, just kidding. Somebody I would rather have on for the first guest, uh, someone who's really talented and I think has an amazing uh, future. Kim, how um, how are you doing today? What uh, What's happening in your world? really well today all my author copies of my first ever novel july 17th just arrived um, at my address and yes i'm very excited to see to actually hold a physical copy of my book which has been um, the fruit of i guess almost six years of labor now Six years, six years, fantastic. How did it? How did it come about? So um, the idea for this um, book called July Seventeenth, the idea first came about because of the tragedy of Malaysian Airlines flight MH Seventeen that was shot down over Ukraine on July Seventeenth in two thousand fourteen. I lost a friend on that flight. And at the time, I myself was in, uh, was at a crossroads between choosing different career paths in my life. In 2014, I had decided to take a year off from working as a doctor in the public hospital system and enrolled myself into acting school. Wow. In July of 2014, that was when job applications for positions in the public hospital system for the following year was approaching deadlines. And I was at a crossroads thinking, should I give up acting, go back into medicine, working full-time, or do I still continue acting and see how that goes if I could actually pursue my childhood dream? So on July when 17th... Did you come, when did you come to Australia? What year did you come to Australia? I came to Australia in 2005, okay. so right out of high school um, from Malaysia. Um, yeah, so when the tragedy happened on July 17th, I found suddenly it was like a wake-up call for me and all my doubts about choosing career paths just went out the window and I decided, okay, that's it. I have to give acting a go and try to, try to pursue my passion really. So I was studying at the Howard Fine Acting Studio in Melbourne, um, doing the full-time program there. And yes, I was learning from the best teachers all the way from LA and they flew over to Melbourne and also um, the, all the 
local talents, um, acting teachers from within Melbourne as well. Um, yeah, and also meeting lots of talented people, talented actors, creative talents. And yes, and I was having the time of my life, just enjoying it so much. Fantastic. Fantastic. And and obviously it was very difficult, as you shared. Uh, I've, no, I've known Kim for a number of years now since the inception of this, um, being the daughter of, of a family coming from Malaysia and having gone through medical school to frankly tell your parents or not tell your parents that you wanted to segue from medicine to the arts, that would have been a, a massive, a massive ask. Yes, that was, that was actually, I think the biggest hurdle that I did not think about at the time, but I thought the I thought the biggest hurdle would be within myself, but actually I found myself to be easier to convince rather than my parents. Wow. Um, and <laughs> oh. and um, <laughs> it took some time. It took some time, and I think they were oh they might still be in denial. But now that I've actually published a book, I think they're. A Big they are in denial. I, I interviewed them earlier and I have them. No, just kidding. Um, that, that's, been, that's fantastic. You you shared this with me years ago and having had massive, I shouldn't say issues with my parents, but being very much in, in fear of my um, father who was so successful and respect think, to have perhaps gone against his wishes or done something that I ostensibly might have thought wasn't the career path he would have wanted to choose would have been massive. So um, I I felt what you were going through, and I knew it was massive just just to sit from afar and watch it, but be so excited about your journey because obviously it's something yeah you shared with me when we met um, when I spoke at Howard Fine that day. Yes, yes, and that was in the year um, two thousand fourteen as well, I think. That sounds about right. That sounds about right. You you attended um, my seminar out at Howard Fine. That's how we met, correct? Yes, I think I attended that earlier in the year. And then I remember going home and just thinking, oh, wow, what? I, I, I was still trying to... Um, trying to imagine what it would be like to actually be able to create my own story and hopefully one day, you know, manifest it and see, and see it come to life um, in print, on page, uh, on, on screen. And then, and then a few months later, this incident happened. Um, and then it just came to me and I thought, I have a story to tell. And then I remembered I got in touch with you and I asked, would you be interested in listening to a story like this? And I remember you were so supportive and you were just saying, yes, do it, write it, start writing, start creating and stop editing yourself before you actually put anything down um, on the page, which is what I used to do. <laughs> exactly, because I, I, exactly a very, very powerful self-editor. I shared when we met to go home, find a story to promote yourself, to to produce yourself, to to make yourself the focus. And then when the airline disaster happened, 
I do do remember you calling, and it's an odd one because it's it's some people think, oh, is that capitalizing on a disaster? No, that's a disaster yeah. that was an inspiration for how you changed your life. And there was even a chance, perhaps, that you were going to um, were, were you going to possibly be on that flight, or was that um, not going to ever so, happen? Um, that was that I was I was not going to be on that flight, but I do know of um, uh, mutual friends with um, Elaine who um, tragically died in that incident. So mutual friends were actually talking about the trip. Wow, wow! The 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 six degrees of separation, so to speak. So that's been now. This July will be six years. Unbelievable. And strangely enough, all the trials are going on in Europe right now with the alleged three culprits that were involved in shooting the plane down who have fled back to Russia that will probably never face justice. And you had come up with the idea. um, I know that um, we worked together when you um, started with 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 the treatment toward, towards a film and decided to segue into get the book out first. Your your so your your book literally has arrived today. Today is the day. It just arrived, and I don't think I, I yeah we didn't even plan on on coinciding this interview with the arrival of the book. No, I thought it would be a few more week weeks away. So that is amazing. Now the publisher is. Um, uh, Brolga Publishing, based out of here in Melbourne, is that correct? Yes, yes. So I had approached um, a few different publishers, and they were the first one to um, reply and say that we're interested in your story. We'd like to hear more. So um, please give us some time to edit and uh, send this to an editor. And yeah, and the editor just replied within a week, I think, and was so excited about working on the story. So I thought, okay, this, okay, we're going somewhere. <laughs> Fantastic. And, and how would you describe it in a, in a nutshell? It's, it's not an airline disaster book, so to speak, or story. It's a, a story of changes and opportunity. What would you say the, the book is like in a nutshell? How would you like people to perceive it? Yeah, so I did not set out to write a story about the plane crash or focusing on the tragedy. I actually wrote it um, because I was more inspired by, I was more triggered by the loss of life and friendship, the relationship, and also hope. And, and also in a way, so at the time when the incident happened, my friend was about the same age as I was. Mm-hmm. And because I was struggling through the dilemma within myself at the time, and when I heard the news, I just thought that could have been me. And at that young age, I still had so much I wanted to try, so much I wanted to do. And I just thought to myself, if I was given, if my friend had been given a second chance at life, what would she have chosen to do instead? Was there anything that any of us, if given a second chance at life, would have 
wanted to do differently? Was there anything that we would have regretted not doing? And so then I thought, for me, that would be my regret would have been if I did not try to pursue my childhood dream in the arts. And I think that in this current society and also in this current situation in the world, what with the coronavirus pandemic going on, and a lot of people have been um, forced to stay home and be isolated, I actually think rather than thinking of it as a lockdown, I actually think it's a great opportunity for everyone to maybe take a step back, take a breather, rethink their lives, reflect on their lives, and maybe think about, was there anything that they would want to do differently? Was there anything new that they want to try out during this time? Might be an opportunity to clean the slate and when the lockdown or the pandemic is declared to be over it could be a second chance at life for a lot of people and maybe there are new career paths that people are thinking of new hobbies new dreams to cultivate and yeah and this could be a second chance for a lot of people i think i think that's stunning and i you, you know my philosophy that, well, literally, the darker it is, the brighter it is on the, on the other side. Um, my lovely wife likes to say, I'm not a glass, ha- glass half full person, I'm a glass overflowing. And I, when people <laughs> say, oh, I've had this big disaster, or I've had this childhood thing happen, or I had cancer, or I had a car wreck, or I lost my business, or whatever like that. I mean, I've had a thousand train wrecks. Everyone's had a thousand train wrecks. Everybody goes through things. So to be observant like that and say, you've got this time, whether it's a couple of weeks or, you know, six weeks or a couple of months, we don't know how long it's going to last. If you had that mm-hmm. second chance at life, what what would you do? And And I really hope that when people read your book, they will get the essence of that. Uh, I've been very close to it because we were working together. Yes. I was mentoring you and working towards a, what's ultimately will be um, a film from this, of which there's been a lot of interest out there. Um, but more importantly to the book, having seen what you originally wrote and then reading your final manuscript, it's it's just like watching someone throw seeds out and waiting and waiting and waiting, and then it starts to burst through the ground. And then this amazing flower or tree comes out because it's it's a stunning book, and I'm not just saying that, uh, and not just because you're a friend. I don't give out compliments lightly. I would rather criticize things to, to the bone. And so this this one's from the heart. It's, it's a great, great project, and I wish you well with it. Thank you so much, Bobby. Thank you again for having me, and I will get a copy of the book to you as soon as possible. And I hope you will love reading it as much as um as much as everyone else. And yeah, and I hope anyone who reads it, if they do find that they really finish reading the book and come out of it thinking they do want a career change or make some cha- make some changes in their lives, that there is no shame. There's absolutely no shame and no guilt in wanting to do that and just giving yourself a second chance at your life, basically. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thanks, Kim. Wow. How amazing is she? Um, 
hope you'll read that book. Really hope you'll read that book. And hopefully, before too long, there'll be a movie out there for you. Anyway, that's been it pretty much for today. I want to give a shout out. Uh, a lot of people were wondering, I know a lot of people are asking yourself, back in Boulder when I was playing poker on the hill and uh, or, you know, driving around aimlessly, you know, on Purple Microdot, didn't I ever get hungry? Something like that? I, yes, I used to get very hungry. And we used to hang out at uh, Round the Corner uh, up on the hill. And uh, actually, that's where I got my first job during school as a busboy and uh, kind of waiter and cook and things like that, uh, which is where I learned to be humble and respect service staff, as I talked about in the first episode. And a shout out to my mate, my friend, Jim Sattery, who gave me that first job, probably one of the nine worst decisions he ever made in his life. Uh, he ran around the corner in the hill in Boulder. And little does he know that um, often I would come to work completely you know, dialed out of my mind. And in fact, there was one episode I do have to share before we go where it was after a CU football game, the Buffaloes, uh, and one of my great Buffalo fans, Mark Louis Lewis, awesome keyboardist who's probably listening in right now. People would pile in to round the corner on the hill. And I mean, like hundreds, thousands, millions, or if Chris Hayes said it, billions, billions of people would be coming in. And I was cooking we had this wheel. It was, you know, the wheel you put the tickets on. It was uh, a bit and a half. People would call in on a phone from a banquette, and they would order, you know, like I'll have a hamburger, number 23, with cheese and mushrooms, stuff like that. Or worse, especially when you're really high, they'd let their kids, their three-year-old kid, pick up the phone and call in. And you have to say, you know, put your fucking mother on the phone. And uh, that actually happened once. And the lady picked up the phone and goes, this is the fucking mother. Uh, I go, oh, great. Okay, I'll take your order, please. And what's your, your surname? And, and she gave me her surname. And I go, okay, oh, yeah, that uh, oh that, that sounds familiar. That sounds like the surname of one of the owners. And she goes, yes, that would be my husband. Anyway, as you probably guessed, that was one of my last hours at the restaurant. But previous to that, when there was this mayhem and absolute chaos one day, when a million people were there, or billions, as Chris, as Chris Hayes reported, the wheel that you put all the tickets on was so full there was like three and four tickets on every little clip, and nobody could handle it. We didn't know how to do it. So I did, in a moment of clarity, I took every ticket off the wheel, tore it up, threw it in the trash. And everybody looked aghast. I go, but there's no orders. Everyone's going to freak out. And I go, no. When they're hungry, they'll call back. And they did. So, Jim, thanks for hiring me. So the lesson in all this is, if you're hungry, you'll call back. If you are bored and freaking out during this Wuhan virus pandemic, it will end. There will always be something on the other side. And that's very important. And always remember, it's nice to be important, but it's really more important to be nice. Have an epic weekend. Cheers. <laughs>